This week on Launch Stories. So if you are hire assholes, then they pollute the culture of the company and it's going to stay with you forever. So it's really, really important that uh, you focus on the quality of the people, which is why still as a CEO, I still interview everyone. And, and jokingly, internally, they call me the chief anti-asshole officer. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Matteo Berlucci, a serial digital entrepreneur who has launched and built nine businesses over his nearly 30-year career. At present, he's co-founder and CEO of Healthily, a medically approved self-care platform that enables people to assess and manage their health using a combination of artificial intelligence and insights from doctors and healthcare professionals. With over 2 million users monthly worldwide, Healthily's pioneering approach to online clinical safety has attracted $47 million in funding and the support of organizations like UNESCO and the European Commission. I'll be speaking to Matteo about what makes a successful serial entrepreneur and the challenges of building a team as you scale your business. Let's listen to Matteo's launch story. All right, Matteo, welcome to the, uh, to the podcast. It's great to see you again. Hi, Zoltan. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I recall that we met each other around 2013, 2014. And I think I, at the time, uh, I was still in the media business and you were the founder of a company called LifeStation, which was sort of a streaming platform for news channels. By that time, you had already launched an e-commerce business, an enterprise software company, and digital real estate business. Uh, I think this certainly qualifies you as a serial entrepreneur. Tell me, what drives you to build so many companies? I think that qualifies me as a digital dinosaur. I would say. <laughs> That's another way to look <laughs> at it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, my first startup was in 1995. And I remember it was the digital real estate platform. And I was going around visiting real estate agents with a laptop, showing them this, you know, essentially what everybody uses now to search for homes. And the first question I was getting from the estate agent was, what is the internet? <laughs> it's so early. It's really fun. Yeah. What drives me? I, I don't know. I think it's... Um, you know, I fell in love with the internet uh, in 93 when it's actually the World Wide Web came out. And I felt immediately the power of this in revolution, this invention of the World Wide Web. I really, it really struck me immediately as, you know, something that would have transformed the world in, in so many ways. So as a young man, I was 23 back then. I felt that, you know, that was a great opportunity. It was like, you know, discovering America. And, and I thought that, you know, you're going to be able to do something with this. It's going to be so exciting what is going to come. So I jumped into my first startup that was that real estate portal in 1995. And since then, I just kept on you know, trying to build businesses uh, that were, uh, my objective has always been to try to do something to, to help people uh, achieve something using technology. Mm -hmm. So the common denominator of all my startups has always been how do we use tech to enable people to do something better. And is that connection to technology something that 
you brought with yourself from very, very young age, or is that something that was driven by all the changes that have going on in the industry? No, I was from a young age because I've always been very fascinated with technology. So my undergraduate studies were in theoretical physics, and I did uh, the kind of the equivalent of a PhD in Italy in, in physics. And then I, uh, but I fell in love with computers very early on when I was 14, mm -hmm. 15 with the first uh, programmable computers, like the ZX Spectrum, the Commodore. And uh, so I always had this passion for tech. And so when the internet came along, I started building my first businesses. I managed to marry that pretty deep understanding of computers and technology with business needs. And I think still today is probably one of my main characteristics is having a pretty well-developed understanding of both the tech and the business. I know uh, that you were also involved in a company uh, called Beans. And in your LinkedIn profile, you said it, it left me with a lot of very valuable teachings on what not to do when you have a lot of funding. Yeah. So tell me, what did you learn from yes. your experience with Beans? That, that was a really fun experience because Beans was one of the darlings of the dot-com period. So basically what happened was that because very few companies had the experience of building startups, there was a rush at trying to inflate the company as quickly as possible. But, you know, we did all the crazy things, right? You know, we opened 12 offices in 12 months. Uh, you know, everybody traveled first class and everybody stayed five stars hotel and it was like uh, El Dorado. You know, it was completely crazy. Um, uh. Yeah. And I learned a lot there because, you know, we really, I learned that you cannot uh, force your your adoption to market beyond a certain limit. You know, you always have to have a strong organic base and then you can top it up with uh, with money. But that was just like trying to use brute force to win market share. And, and I don't think it works. It's not sustainable. You know, you can create peaks. But I remember I was part of that uh, dot-com boom as well with my own business. Uh, and I recall that was the era when you would just be getting these startups spending literally tens and tens of millions of dollars on marketing, on television advertising. If you look across all of your different businesses you've been involved with, which is quite a diverse number of industries, types of business, so on, are there certain elements that are common to each of those that, you would say are an integral part of building a successful business? And what are the things that you think you'd have to adjust depending on the actual business and the industry? So the first question, what are the common things? I think that the probably the two biggest ones are that whatever business you're building, I believe that it has to have very strong fundamentals from an economic point of view. You need to have a business, if you want to be successful, that has strong uh, unit economics, you know, and there you have to do it by design. So you have to design businesses that are intrinsically high margin and scalable, because that's what the internet brings you: is the ability to scale and also to make money with gross margin models. You know, Google, mm -hmm. Facebook, and Apple, and so on. Are there. That's why they are who they are, right? Um, I see a lot of businesses now that are getting all the headlines and the funding that are really surprised by their underlying business models because they are intrinsically low margin and very difficult to scale. So that's the first big learning. The second is the importance of people. So the human side of things, the human skills. Because at the end of the day, every company is just the sum of the people that work there. So making sure that you can put together 
a strong team of people that have strong human skills, that have empathy, they have you know trust. That makes gives you an unfair advantage, I think, because again, most companies are just you know pulling people in because of their hard skills. You know, you bring in somebody because in theory is good at doing something, but there is a, a quite uh, worrying neglect of this. The what are some people call the soft skills, but I, I think they're called should be called human skills, which are fundamental because you can only succeed if you have a strong team, and especially at the beginning. Because the key people you bring in in the outset are going to set the culture going forward. So if you hire toxic people, or can I swear on this podcast, or is not? You around? can say whatever you, say you feel like is the appropriate way to. Assholes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're called assholes, so you know there's no real word for them. So if you hire assholes, then they pollute the culture of the company, and it's going to stay with you forever. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important that uh, you focus on the quality of the people, which is why still as a CEO, I still interview everyone. And and jokingly, internally, they call me the chief anti-asshole officer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's there's actually a book that was written. I would think it's called The No Asshole Rule. I don't know if you've heard of this. It was written by, no. uh, 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 I'm not sure if it was an entrepreneur or an investor in Silicon Valley. And it basically says very similar things to what you just said, which is basically that the culture of an organization should be such that it uh, it promotes people who not only are good at what they do, but they create an atmosphere where people can uh, flourish. And no matter how great you are at delivering the numbers, if you're just not a good guy, then you don't have a place in an organization. That's absolutely true. So tell me, uh, how many assholes have you hired over the course of your uh, nine businesses? Too many. <laughs> but i have hired some great people and actually i've got to say that that's one of the things that you can learn over time that you know with the experience is to to pick the better people and i've got to say that my current team and healthily is definitely the best i've ever built Mm -hmm. and that's because of the experience i had over the years Uh so so it's and it makes a huge difference huge huge difference and then you asked me the second question was how do you you know anything the more specific to industries? I think every industry is different because as you said, I, I have worked in several and and you have to learn the the industry specific issues before you can um, get into them and and kind of give it a good shot. Um, ideally, you come for any from an industry so that you already know the industry and then you basically you don't have to to relearn it. In my case, I generally got into areas that i didn't know much about but i brought my experience in in building teams and have a very good understanding of the technology but i had to learn in every industry quite a bit quite quickly and and it's there are not many similarities to be honest i mean uh, again the similarities are in in how human function so you know when you're trying to sell something understanding the psychology of the buyer it really doesn't matter what they're buying, but they always people buy in a certain way. So there are more commonalities than differences, I would say. But you know, there are twists and turns for each industry. So, for example, with healthfully, we had to confront with all the regulatory environment because it's healthcare, and uh, uh, you know, you cannot move fast and break things because you move fast and kill people, which is. Not very good. Yeah, not a good, not a <laughs> so, good desired outcome for sure. Exactly, and so you have to learn all of that, and and there is you know a regulatory framework in place for a reason, and it's pretty stiff, you know, and it's not designed for digital. So you know a lot of the time in the you know the company now is six years old. We probably spent at least one third to half of our time 
working out how to work with the regulatory system, which is not ready for what we do. So there was a massive challenge, which I never encountered in previous startups. So you mentioned Healthily. That's obviously the business that you're currently the co-founder and CEO of. Can you tell us about the business in a little bit more detail and how it's evolved over uh, its six-year history? In fact, I recall when we mm -hmm. met, it was called something different, even the name, yeah? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was called Your.md, Your.md. Um, the evolution has been very interesting. And, uh, you know, the, the good thing is that the core idea never changed. So the core idea is, is again, is a technical idea. It's the idea to use technology to empower people to do more about their health than they can do today, right? So today, healthcare is completely asymmetric world and where basically healthcare is only given you don't do, you know, you go to a doctor, you go to, well, it's always somebody giving you healthcare. And, and so my idea was how can you use technology to take whatever is possible from the current healthcare system and shift it directly to us users? I don't like the word patients because we're all patients. Every, every, mm -hmm. every person is a patient, you know, because everyone needs help. So, and that was the original idea, never changed. So what's changed? was the, the understanding of how to do it, what was possible, what were the limitations, which obviously at the outset, I, I didn't know with the team. So one of the big evolution was that we, we set out to build an artificial intelligence uh, platform that could help people answer very, very important and somewhat simple question or common question, which is not so much what's wrong with me when you're unwell, but what should I do? So the focus, okay, if you're not sure, you're there, you got something and, you know, so today your only option is to go to see the doctor. So first, half of the world population doesn't have access to a doctor. The other half has to wait probably two weeks before they see mm -hmm. the doctor. Half of them have to pay out of pocket. The other have universal health care, but still it's not a very simple way to find that answer. Mm -hmm. And then from our data from the National Service in the UK, around 30% of visits to the doctor are for things where you didn't need to see the doctor. <laughs> so uh -huh. Especially you're going to the doctor to be told that you don't need the doctor, which is crazy. So inefficient is insane. So that's what we really focused on. So how do we help people self-care? And I strongly believe that self-care is the thing that digital can unlock. Because I think that we all love to do things on our own. You know, the internet is a, is a huge self-service platform. You self-serve your banking, your dating, your holidays, you know, everything. So you mentioned self-care is a, is a critical part of, of your proposition to your customers. But aren't you expecting the average consumer to do too much? I mean, aren't we fundamentally lazy and unwilling to take steps to prevent our own health? Uh, it's a really good point, but I think, you know, it's a very generalized statement. You know, there are, the, the world is, is made up of lots of different people and there are a lot of people that actually take their health very seriously. If you look at the success of the, all the apps that help you quantify your health, you know, all these trackers, there's like millions of apps and people that use them. And from, we've done an extensive research and while it's difficult for people to commit to change their habits, that's the really hard thing. Mm -hmm. Doing something a bit simpler, which is to take a little bit more control and awareness of one's health, it's much easier. It's much more accessible as, as, a, as an objective. So that's what we've done with our platform, with our apps and our website. 
with targeting people, you know, not people that want to become, uh, you know, athletes or run a marathon, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. people that just want to be able to answer some basic questions, get some insights in their basic health and how to improve it and, and control it. Could you give a, perhaps an example, just a typical example of how your target customer would use or benefit from Healthly? Sure. So we have two different scenarios, one for the website is targeting people that are looking for health information that is personalized, so relevant to them, and medically safe. Mm -hmm. And we found that these two factors are not found anywhere else on the web today. Mm -hmm. If you search on Google, you find whatever you want, but you have no idea if what you're reading is actually relevant to you, and you're not really guaranteed that that content is medically validated. So that's what we do on the website. So it's more for people that have a question, medical question, they're concerned, and they just want to find a quick, safe, and relevant answer. So that's what we're doing with the website. The app is for a more committed type of user, uh, as you were saying before. You know, the, it's more the user that is kind of has a condition. Maybe he's got a chronic condition, could be asthma, allergies, uh, you know, mm -hmm. eczema, diabetes. They want to take more control of their health or they're just healthy and they want to make sure that they keep a tab on their sleep, on their nutrition and their activity. And so we created an app that has a very strong tracking goals and planning inside the app to help you uh, measure your health today and continuously keep an eye on it and improve it. So those are the two main scenarios that you can uh, benefit from using our platform. Now, I know that you you currently have about 2 million users uh, per month worldwide, uh, which presumes you've got quite a large international footprint. Talk to us a little bit about how you started your international expansion and what role India in particular has played in your uh, global business. Yeah, so we have an advantage compared to other businesses that healthcare, or, well, your health is pretty similar globally. So because we're all human beings, so a, a cold is a cold, you know, it's the same everywhere, mm -hmm. right? So that's an advantage. So we had this thing and, and so we created a platform that is, um, is not localized in any particular way. It's quite generalist in the way it talks about health. So we don't say you should go and speak to your GP, we mm -hmm. see, which is a general practitioner in the yep. UK. We say go and speak to your doctor, right? Yep. So the language is English. So it's accessible to anyone who speaks English. Obviously, US, UK, Australia, India, you know, all those places where English is the main language are, uh, you know, obviously a natural target for us. And so for now, we just focus on these languages. On the website, we have done some translations in Hindi and Spanish to see what's the uptake in, in those kind of language groups. And India is an important uh, country for us because what I wanted to do was to run and develop the international expansion using two different um, examples or two different markets. One is the United States, because obviously it's the largest and is probably the most dysfunctional from a healthcare point of view, with 18% uh, of GDP spent on healthcare as opposed to 6% in Europe. So you can understand that there's a big opportunity to optimize. Right. But India is a fantastic prototype for emerging markets, for, for you know, developing economies. You know, 1.3 billion people, very digitalized. They have now mobile penetration is phenomenal. They have 5G everywhere, very cheap. 
mm-hmm. but they have a very, very basic healthcare system. So I wanted to have these two markets as the two kind of, you know, the two opposites in a way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also one of our investors is Rekit, the um, pharmaceutical company. They're very strong in India. They have some really powerful brands there. So mm-hmm. we, we are studying that market entry with them. You know, you have a growing business that's raised almost $50 million in investment. And I would imagine that part of the benefit of that is that you can actually build the organization itself to match the growth of the of the company uh, in the marketplace. Um, interesting insight. In the case of my podcast invitation uh, to you, you were the only founder who actually had a VP of marketing reach out to me to discuss the concept and the details, which already in, in implies that you've got sort of a layer of professional support around you. Um, that you needed to build. How would you describe the process of scaling an organization to meet the demands of the business uh, as it stands in the marketplace? What do you need to, to pay attention to and, and what is in your focus? Ooh, it's probably one of the most difficult things. Um, you need, I think, in no particular order, I'll tell you what we've done that so far seems to work. First of all, you need a very clear set of objectives and key results. So now it's very trendy to use this OKR models, but they're really, really powerful because it makes it very clear to everyone what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You agree on the objectives, you create this uh, sort of cascade of objectives that start from your top one, which is, you know, in our case is help a billion people find better health and you know the other one obviously become a profitable company yeah and then from there you can drive all the other things and then that helps you understand what needs to be done then you need to um understand what kind of roles are you know, how to design the roles around the objectives and in that i think that one of the things i really liked about startups is that you can be very creative mm-hmm. so you don't have to go oh i need a marketing person i need a salesperson you know, there are new jobs, there are new roles that don't exist. So you can, you can come up with some really crazy roles, but you just need to, and you need to do that because, you know, there are certain things that are quite novel for certain companies. And uh, right. so maybe the reason the, the somebody's got an MBA on it, basically. So that's also very important. Keep your mind open on the roles. And the other thing is trying to hire really good people. And uh, which is the hard one, uh, especially you know, now there's a lot of competition. There's a, uh, there are many more jobs than people that can fill them. So that's always a challenge, you know, so, and also retaining people because even if you find the good ones, keeping them, it's hard because they get headhunted all the time. So you need to make sure that you have a very strong culture in the company. You have a very open culture. You have very good benefits and you need to really think about the team. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about the team, how to mm-hmm. make sure the team is the right team. Everybody's got what they need. They're all mm-hmm. on the same page. They're motivated. And, and it's, it's changed a lot because in the past, you didn't have to do that. How long do you expect to be interviewing every single uh, applicant or, or finalist for a position? I generally spend half an hour with them, at least half an hour. And they only get to me when they pass the other interview. Sure. So I interview for culture and personality. I don't interview for skills. Uh-huh. So they get interviewed for skills by the heads of the different departments. And then they come to me for the last interview to see if they're assholes or not. 
<laughs> basically. It, it all goes back to the asshole question, right? <laughs> it all goes back to the asshole's principle. A principle. A principle, exactly. How many people do you have working in the uh, company now? Uh, we have around 100. Do you anticipate interviewing uh, people for their final interview when you've got 500 people? Or do you have any ambition to be at 500 people? I will try. And what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to coach the other senior leadership team to de detect the assholes. So we do asshole detection camps. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Matteo, we've just discovered a whole new management principle here that uh, could be the for foundation of something really big. So it, uh, it sounds like it's a good uh, good idea. Where, do you where, where would you like to see Healthily grow in terms of scale and impact? There is a real need for the platform like Healthily because the COVID, one of the things that COVID highlighted is how inefficient the healthcare systems are today. And if you look at the healthcare as a demand, demand and supply problem, uh, you can improve the supply as much as you like, but you're never going to be able to meet the demand mm -hmm. because the demand is spiraling out of control because of you know, growing population, people living old, longer lives, uh, people becoming more acquainted to technology, so expecting more, you know, more and faster. Um, and the, hand, the other hand, supply is actually shrinking. But I think that the only hope is to sh to shift some of the burden onto the the people themselves. So I, I just I would like to see helpfully being one of the the companies that open the floodgate to this trend, to this movement of self care, and you know, be more self reliant. And we, we would like to help a billion people you know, find their health through technology. And that's what I'd like you to see in the next few years. Well, it's certainly a very ambitious goal, but it's something that uh, gives you a, a North Star you can follow. If I think about your business uh, from a funding standpoint, uh, what, one thing that makes it a bit unique is that you started out with venture capital, um, but you then really had a breakthrough investment round with... Uh, a strategic investor, Reckitt, who you mentioned before, a, a global pharmaceutical and, and fast-moving consumer goods company. Uh, was that a very uh, purposeful decision? And what have you seen to be the difference in the way you run the business now that you've got a very large strategic investor in place and not just financial investors? We actually started with uh, uh, angels and high net worth individuals. Got it. Okay. And... We also raised money from a corporation, public company in the Nordics in 2017 uh -huh. called Orkla, okay. which is a big FMCG in the Nordics. Okay. <clears throat> and that was purposeful, you know, because I found that this type of business, it's a long-term type of business that actually needs an organic time to develop. And that's because of the nature of the business. So it's a combination of the fact that healthcare moves slowly because you cannot move fast and kill people, as I was saying before. Sure. You have the regulatory sort of, you know, guardrail around you that keeps you even, you know, you can go even slower because of that. And that doesn't really sit well with VCs. Because mm -hmm. VCs want to generally kind of have a clear path to exit. And we are always wanted to build a long lasting business. And so that's why it's more suited to corporates and high net worth individuals. It's kind of interesting because the dynamics in the company are really different from 
the ones funded from VCs. And everything that I thought of, uh, which turned out to be correct, is is getting uh, your name out in the world of healthcare, consumer healthcare. It's really challenging because of one dimension that you don't need in other businesses, which is trust. Mm-hmm. You know, you need trust. Building trust takes a long time. Um, you know, there's a lo- line that I love. This is uh, uh, trust comes on foot and lives on horseback, which is <laughs> which really <laughs> uh-huh, gives you a good idea what you're dealing with. But so to do build trust over time, it takes decades. Whatever you do. The other way is to borrow it. You know, if you hang out with trustworthy people, then people might think you're trustworthy too. Sure. So that's why having a company like Rekid, which is FTSE 100, one of the leaders in consumer healthcare, the very fact that they invested in the company means that they've done a due diligence on us that a VC would have never done in terms of our medical qualification and medical grade. Right. And so the fact that I have record as an investor enables me to sit at a table with some of the biggest companies in the world and be taken seriously. If I walked in there with the same amount of money, but from VCs, I would not have any medical and trust credentials whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that was all intentional by design. And I think it's paying off quite nicely. So where does that leave you in terms of, of the... One of the key elements of of kind of the startup experience, which is you know trying to get your big exit and and uh, uh, and seeing the financial benefits of all your hard work, uh, is that something that you've decided to delay? Is that something that will happen in a different form? How do you see that playing out? With this company, as as you read in a lot of business books, you know you should never be driven by the exit mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's generally not particularly. Um, it doesn't really work very well. Sure. And in this particular case, because we have such a strong uh, social impact angle, I mean, that is in itself extremely rewarding. So, of course, I have investors that want an exit. So we will have an exit. And uh, But I just want to make sure that you know we help a billion people because I think that if we manage to get there, you know, by the same token, the company is going to be worth tens of billions. Sure. So. It's kind of the, the exit will come with the success of the service. My undivided focus today is on making sure we have a great service that actually is valued by people and that delivers you know, better health around the world. And, and money will come with that because, and I go back to my first point at the beginning of the interview, we have a high margin, very scalable business model. Right. So, the more, you know, so we can scale a lot and we can make a lot of money. Um, right, but it's great that you can do it by also help, helping people. You know that is the perfect combination. You're helping people and make money. You know what do you want more in life? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, having that purpose is an important uh, driving force of a of a successful business. We've heard that from several of our guests uh, that have come on on the podcast over the last uh, uh, couple of months. One of the things I love to ask all of my guests uh, is right at, towards the end of our of our discussion is obviously with your extensive experience across so many industries, so many different businesses, uh, with both successes and failures, as you explained yourself. Uh, what would be your kind of top three tips for startup founders? about what they need to do to build a successful global company? Well, the first one, you probably guess it. You know, don't hire assholes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> don't hire assholes, meaning pay a lot of attention to the people you're hiring. Right. You know, do not compromise on the quality of the people you hire. 
because yep. it's gonna you know you you're gonna pay for that at some point. The second one is um, is the is the margin thing. You know, make sure you have a business that has high margins mm-hmm. because it's really tough. And if you don't have high margins, it just it's going to be impossible because the amount of money you have to raise to to give a shot of profitability, it's just going to be insane. Mm-hmm. So you know, and I'm talking about starting from scratch. Eh? Obviously, sure. of course, Amazon can make a lot of money with lower margins, but you know, they've been there for twenty years. Um, the third one is don't take it too seriously. Try to look after your mental, you know, well-being and your mental balance, mm-hmm. because this type of uh, adventures can eat you alive. Yeah. Um, so try to do it in a sort of playful way. You know, it's like an adventure. It's like trying to get to the North Pole. <laughs> and, and if you fail, you fail because, you know, the odds are against you anyway. So you need to start knowing that there's a pretty fat chance you're going to fail. So do not, uh, you know, do, do, do not hammer yourself and, you know, and head, bang the head on the wall too much because, you know, because you learn and you, and then you next one, you can do it better. So, but try to really maintain a healthy mental balance because you need that as a leader of a company because you need to also show good balance to your team. And, you know, you have to be the, it, you know, the person with the right, you know, calmness and comforting voice in the team. That's what ex- is expected, I think, by the, the CEO of a company. Fantastic. So basically hire good people, uh, build high margins and take care of yourself. Yes. Fantastic. Those are all great uh, words of advice, Matteo. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me here on Line Stories. Thank you, everybody who's been listening for joining me on this Global Startup Podcast. We hope you got inspired again through Matteo's example and have learned some of the ingredients of building a successful global business. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. 